If you've been listening to this podcast in 2021, then you are aware that I have had many guests that I really loved for many films that I spoke very highly of. And that is partly because I like to have on guests from movies that I really enjoy. (laughs) Why would I bring on and have guests from movies that we didn't enjoy or didn't have an excitement and passion to discuss? But in any case, in a year that was full of very good feature films that I loved, Nightmare Alley, for me personally, stood above the rest for a number of reasons. And I'm not saying it's objectively better. I just really enjoyed it. As a fan of cinema, particularly film noir, movie history, the movies of the era that the movie depicts, and the way that the filmmakers, led by, of course, Guillermo del Toro, attacked this project. It is based on a book, classically dark noir book about the carnival world, a Depression-era story. It was made into a noir film in 1947, starring Tyrone Power. And that movie is a little different than the book because studio demands at the time and Daryl Zanuck having certain needs for one of his biggest stars in power. Guillermo del Toro has adapted it much closer to the original text here in a sort of modern but still classically noir manner. I've never seen noir done in color quite this way. It felt beautiful, effective, dark, gritty, grimy, haunting, and fascinating. It is a deep, layered story. I talked to, today, cinematographer Dan Lostson and editor Cameron McLaughlin, and there's only so much time for us to get into all the nooks and crannies and crevices and hidden areas within this film. So we do our best to cover some of the broad strokes. If you've seen the film, this interview will be really interesting because we dig into some specific sequences. And if you haven't, there are no spoilers, but you certainly will be hearing us talk about things that you are unfamiliar with. And I say that because it might be a good idea to go see it and come back and listen to this afterwards, because I think it'll be much more interesting under those circumstances. And not all the interviews we do are like that. And I'm going to try to uh, abridge this intro and talk a little bit more at the outro about certain things. But I want to hand it over to Dan and Cam. They both have had great careers. Dan has been shooting with Guillermo for a long time. And Cam has been working in the sound department. This may be his first feature as an editor. But both of them bring a lot of insight to the making of this movie and the process with GDT And I hope we cover this film a lot more. We're hoping to have a couple more interviews with other people who worked on the film. And I think it's going to be a heavy hitter in awards season, much like many of the films we've covered. But this was really a pleasure. So go out and see Nightmare Alley if you haven't. And if you have, here we go. Thank you guys both again for doing this. We don't have that much time to talk about what I thought was the best movie of 2021 in a great year. And oh, I thought, thank you. I thought both of you did a phenomenal job. I was just blown away by this movie. And I want to talk about, I guess we'll, we'll try to make this conversation. We'll try to weave the two sides, the post-production and the 
the cinematography together as we talk about the movie. But first, Dan, I just I want to ask you about this film. I have never seen a color film that captured the essence of noir and this period quite as well. Can you tell me a little bit about artistic influences that you and Guillermo had, things you were striving to do, the way you used color, the way you used black, and that you shot on a digital medium where, you know, I would have thought one of the go-tos for something like this would have been cellular. Yeah, yeah. The first time I heard about this movie was when we shot The Shape of Water. And he told me there was like, Nightmare Alley was made before, and there was a black and white movie, but I should not see that because he, you know, he does he didn't want to do anything with that. So I went into this movie very open and blind. And, you know, Game was always making these color palettes, drawings for the sets. So, you know, he's doing this, a color palette for his movies. He does that all the time, the movie I've done with him. And that's number four together with him now. Uh, but he has these concept drawings about like rough color ideas, and then, then, of course, when you're coming into the pre-production, you're talking to the production designer, you're talking to the wardrobe, you're talking to Guillermo, of course, and myself about what color palette we want to go into. And we want to split the movie up in two parts. You know, the carnival should be one thing and mm-hmm. uh, Coco Cabana should be, uh, the buffalo scene should be another part. But we don't want to split it out so we have the feeling about it was two different movies. So the color, you know, we have this steel blue for the nights in both of the scenes, whether, you know, when you're coming into the carnival the first time, you have this pretty, a lot of smoke in the background that's left with the steel blue. And the contrast to that is the warm light from the practicals. And there was a kind of the color palette we was playing around with for the carnival. And the carnival is left much softer, but still very high contrast and very, you know, rich, rich in the blacks, but that's what we really likes. Uh, and when we are coming to the, Cuckoo Cabana, we want to do a little bit more black and a little bit less maybe warm into the light, but still the steel blue was the contrast color for the most of the sets. And we shot it on a Lexus 65, a digital camera with a signature prime lenses. And that combination is like super sharp, super, you know, that's the best you can get from my point of view. Mm. Um, but the problem with that is it's getting very, very sharp, that image. And that's not always so good. So what we are doing is we are shooting with a diffusion filter inside the camera. Interesting. And what that does is it's not touching the black. So you can still have very, very rich black because we really like that. We want to keep the black. You know, we don't want to crash the black. We want to have the black very rich but very deep. But then it blowing the diffusion filter inside the camera, blowing the skin tones and the highlights a little bit away. So you have this like rich deep, deep black, but still a kind of small diffusion in the highlights. And that was like the beginning of discussion for the way we want to do the movie. And of course, then we have to format, you know, discussions about, do we want to shoot Academy? But there was a discussion, wasn't that came from? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We talked about, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think the first day that I went in there to meet with Kiermo, with Dan, um, I Tamara is the production designer. I'm just just so everybody's on the same, right. so our audience knows, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tamara and Kim, uh, the writer, co-writer, and uh, just seen the lighthouse, and I was half joking, saying, "Are we shooting, you know, black and white, one three three pillar box?" And Guillermo, quite, you know, 
he he thought about it for a second and he, and he said honestly the answer is i don't want to make an artifact uh, of of the film i want to make it an original yeah you know we're remaking something that's coming off of a literary basis and it's been turned into a film we're approaching it in a, def- a much different manner we shot a couple of tests you know with different formats and you know it's clearly the way we want to tell the story was much more powerful going American widescreen as the movie was shotting. So that, that was like, and we didn't want to make, as you said, we didn't want to make an art movie, we want to make a powerful story. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, that's such an interesting distinction. We didn't want to make an artifact or an art movie. Something about noir that's fascinating is that it was revered by filmmakers all around the world as an art thing almost immediately after it happened. But in the moment, it wasn't designed to be some kind of high art, right? Like all these stylistic choices were just, they were just trying to entertain people maybe in a kind of a dark, different way. But so you were more leaning into that I guess, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, we want to use the light as a, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, the way Guillermo is shooting a movie, you know, we are moving the camera a lot. So the camera is like going to be the third part of the scene. And especially when you were coming in, when we came into the Cabana, the Buffalo scene sequences, we want to go into a little bit Art Nouveau, Hollywood, glamour lighting, especially on Kate and Brett in those scenes in her in her office. Oh yes. That is that is like you could have done that with simple and still very good soft sidelight. But you know we didn't want to do that. We want to tell a very we want to tell Kate as a very, very powerful woman. Really good looking like a diva, but very powerful diva with a very specific light on her face all the time. So you know we really try to use the light as a power factor for her. There are so many things I want to talk about. I loved it all so much. But okay, so I'm just going to try to focus on talking about those scenes in The Office, which like I was gleeful watching them because I love Double Indemnity. I love The Postman Always Rings Twice. Like it was such a sizzle between the two of them. And it was gorgeous, like the way you lit it. But that set was gorgeous, like intricate and beautiful and I guess two questions that you can each kind of handle it with those sequences. You've got these two incredible performers. You're lighting them in, I imagine, a very specific and intentional manner and blocking it out. And then you've got how many, you know, from the editing standpoint, how much coverage do you have to choose from to get that terse, perfect, you know, how how do you construct from both ends? I want you both to answer it. Like those scenes between them, it's just like, 
fire. It's like that, that is cinema chemistry right there. You know, <laughs> like that is, that is the juice. That's the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, at one point, Guillermo and I were joking in the edit about low hanging fruit and really kind of leaning into the noir and having fun and playing off, you know, the various tropes, but it was clear that we were angling towards a balance of realism and Guillermo as a storyteller, he has so many layers, you know, and his fruit is so rich. And he jokingly said that it might be low hanging fruit, but it's goddamn delicious. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, having those performances and, and layered upon the lighting with the production design and how everything in the design itself of the office is round and there's hidden doors and she has her dictaphone behind the wall and there's all this sort of subterfuge going on and they are kind of circling each other like sharks yeah and playing those two performances off each other was you know really special and really exciting to work with and to go to your question about what performances and you know there was a lot of coverage Guillermo definitely gets that but he's always driving towards you know I would say the truth within the scene but he's moving the camera and Dan and Jill, the operator, are making decisions editorial as well. Yeah. And going back to the design of that set, for example, in the beginning, the design of that set was like the, the office was much, much smaller and it was much more square. In the beginning of the movie, we talked about we want to shoot large format cameras, as I said before, but we want to shoot much more wide angles as we have done before. And we mm. want to have the camera much lower. So, you know, we are shooting wide angle, a little bit low angle as well. So we see the ceilings and we want to have this like, have the feeling about the actors inside, is inside a hidden box because as Kim said, you know, everything is hidden in her, in her office, you know. There's small hidden rooms and doors everywhere. Mm. And we just want to have the feeling about that was locked in that box. And so in the beginning, the, the office was much smaller and we just decided to, together with Tamara, of course, you know, game on myself, you know, make it bigger and bigger and bigger so the actors actually could have this, as you said, that's a really good expression, the sharks were swing, swinging around themselves. Yeah. In that office. Because when the camera's moving so much as camera does, you know, it just needs some space for the actors to perform. And I think that works uh, pretty well in that. And it's cut together fantastic. And you see the scene, you know, we are crossing the lines all the time, you know, going from left to right, right to left. Yeah. And it, it works you guys caught it together so fantastic. Thank you, man. Well, <laughs> yeah, beautiful footage. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I want to also talk about what I feel like were some artistic influences. Like, I'm a big fan of a lot of that American realism of the era, and I feel like I saw a lot of that. There's one shot that looks exactly like Christina's world when he's walking away from the house at the beginning in the field. There's a lot of shots that look like Hopper to me. Like, yeah. did you guys talk about art at that period? It's a different inspiration for noir. It is. Yeah, we saw some pictures. You know, we didn't, I didn't saw any movies together with Guillermo, but, you know, Tamara and me and Guillermo, you know, we was watching, you know, this classic American 30s paintings and some, get some inspiration for that. But that's something happening when you start to, to prepare the movie. But there was, we definitely have that shot where he's coming away from the, from the burning house. Uh, that's, yeah. Like the wife. Yeah. Yes. You talk about the layers, Dan, you talked about the layers and Cameron, you talked about 
Guillermo saying, but it's a juicy fruit or it's like a tasty love fruit. And one thing I keep thinking about is this was not just an exercise in genre. There are, there's so much meaning, I feel like. I don't even know where. Did, you, did he talk to you about all the symbols? I mean, there's like, you know, the idea of the geek show, the circles, framing him in circles or, or talking about, you know, tricks within tricks or lies. You know, there's so, many, there's so many symbols happening and meanings. I'm curious what you talk about and then what you kind of leave because you're still, you know, you're trying to tell the story in front of us. Yeah, of course, Gilmore always have like a lot of hidden things in his movie. That's always happening, you know, you know, hidden symbols, you know, and, and you know, he has this, the fantastic part of working with Gilmore is like, he just knows exactly where he wants to go. You know, he has this agenda about, I want to go from A to B and I want to go this way. And of course, you have like a, a lot of hidden symbols, but it's not something him and me was talking about. We was trying to tell a story. Yeah. You know, and of course, you have this, all his fantastic ideas about the things would be round and then, you know, the, in the, you know, in her office, hidden rooms. And it's not something, you know, you see right away. It's just giving some atmosphere to the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a king of world building and, and Easter eggs. <laughs> for, <laughs> he bears lots of fruit visually. I mean, it's just stunning. And it, it is something that you just, it does come out, as a wave kind of crashing over you in the first viewing, I'd imagine, because I've seen it a thousand times at this point that I would love to see it in five years. (laughs) But, you know, we're in terms of the way we work and the sort of following the symbols and the sort of the hidden messages, it's really just revealing the craft that he's sort of been driving with, Dan, Tamara, Lewis, we're all kind of in his bubble and he's driving the ship and, uh, you know, he serves the film, but we all kind of impart what we can deliver for him to achieve it. Yeah. Did you guys talk about what, you know, I feel like there's a cork question kind of being asked about man or beast <laughs> and it's about this character and it's about this, this geek show and it's about building this idea of like whether or not Stanton is a good person or if he's a bad person, is he a likable person? Is he taking advantage of people? Is his fate? And there's this other thing that feels like, and I feel like this speaks more to the edit too. Does he have free will or is he destined for a certain path? And that ties into the tarot cards and the the options. He's given options at times, but he says, I get to decide, but it it feels like his destiny is pre-written. Do you talk about all these things? Or is this the kind of stuff that gets in the way? <laughs> we talk about them, but not to that level of self-analysis. It's more all feeling and kind of working our way through. And really, at one point in the process and in, in post, we Stan took the wheel, really, of the film. Huh. And we kind of followed him. And the more we were with him, the more we were exploring all these ideas and themes you're bringing up free will or destiny and having him traverse through the carnival and then onto Buffalo. And you're constantly questioning what he's thinking. And he's always either a step in the left or right, you know, away from making a good decision or a bad decision. (laughs) And hopefully you care for him enough, but you're, you're observing him as sort of this monster that, is lurking 
very, very close to the surface sometimes. And, and he's so dangerous, not only to others, but really to himself, ultimately. Most to himself, isn't it like that? Yeah. yeah. So by the end, I mean, it's such an interesting story to tell right now because he, he doesn't change. <laughs> right. You know, we begin and end with him. But the only thing that does change is really his acceptance of what he's done. It's like he's almost committed himself to a life in prison and he he's okay with that. I was devastated by it. <laughs> I found it yeah. emotionally devastating and powerful because I did like him, but he is he he is this movie's hero and villain. And it's it's all in one. And I'm curious when you say he took the wheel, when did that happen? When did he take the wheel in the edit? What does that mean to you? I guess it's you know using all the the cinematic language that we had of his point of view when we cut to him when we held on him for a reaction, entering scenes, leaving scenes, you know, how much we're with, you know, the characters, because he does have these father figures that he comes across and how much of a message they're imparting onto him versus how much he's actually taking in and his own motivations for, you know, befriending, say, Pete, for example. Right. And thematically, there is a father thing going on, obviously. This is truly an Oedipal story. (laughs) It's a lot like Oedipus Rex. I mean, yeah, the psychoanalysis with Lilith, too. I mean, she cracks him open, really, in that scene at night. Yes, it's great. Dan, I want to go back to, I know we're kind of bouncing around. I want to go back to talking about something visually. So there are a lot of night exteriors. And and I'm curious about the lighting you did for them, but also how different they are. The night exteriors in the rain, for example, in the mud, in the carnival, or even at the end of the film, very end, when we feel like it's very much the depression era or post-depression era that you didn't see so much, that it is like a darker, muddier version. And then there's these night exteriors that are almost like beautiful classical Hollywood buffalo, like snowflakes falling and like gentle, you know, and like beautiful streetlights. Like, can you tell me about these very two different kind of night sequences yeah. and, and lighting schemes? You know, the lighting, the background lighting is the same color on both scenes. You know, when they're falling the tents down and it's raining like crazy. And that's like, again, this like steel blue, as we really like Yemeni, that's our favorite night color. And then in the buffalo scenes, we just, we have the same color, but we have much more glamour. You know, we have much more like street lights and, to give this richness because we really try to make two, two different worlds. But as I said before, we want to, it was very important for us to have the same, it was the same movie. It was not like part one was black and white and the next one was color. It should be still a very strong color palette, but just with another contrast color. And the contrast was less warm in the buffaloes. So that was I a little see. more... Yeah, a little bit more rich, I would say. The black is a little bit more rich in the buffalo sequences. And in the carnival, it's like, it's still very black, black in the black. But because the light is more softer, it feels a little bit more, maybe more organic, I would say. Yes, I was going to say it's earthy looking. There's something earthy about that section. There's earth, mud, dirt, but there's also like reds and browns and oranges. And then I think like in buffalo, it's like kind of wood or tan. And like gold, like it's a very elegant 
simple palate. It's much more golden and, uh, and yeah, in the buffalo scenes. And that's, of course, something we're talking about a lot and we talk about when we're prepping. And, but that's very important for us. Like, we are not touching the color too much in the DI. You know, when we're shooting the movie, when we're shooting our dailies, let's look small, less the same as we are doing in the final movie. So the whole color palette is done in the camera because, you know, Tamara sets and the, the costume designs, you know, it's, all the colors are so precise. So you want to do, if you want to touch anything in the post, you're just touching everything. And that's what we're trying not to do. So, you know, we are very precise about doing the color as close as we can as in the camera. And of course, that's bringing, bring it into the editing room. So, you know, the editors, Guillermo and yourself, you know, can just, you really have the right look of the movie in the editing room. And I think that's no, just giving a lot, of, a lot of powers into, into the editing. Cam, can you speak to that a little bit? Like when it gets to you and you see where where things stand color wise, and you're also like this idea of there's these two movies. I mean, does the does the pacing of the cut change a little bit? Do the choices you guys make change once you're sort of like, okay, we're in Buffalo now, we're in the city, we're off the dirt and the mud of the carnival. Right. I mean, I think the biggest thing was we were never trying to split the the two parts. The yeah. Objective was to always make it feel like a whole piece and there there we did mess with the structure of the bridge between the carnival and buffalo kind of late on in the process where i would say you know not to give away too much because there'll never be you know deleted scenes but there was a moment where the transition from carnival to buffalo we go right to the copa Mm. And again, like when I was saying earlier, we were, when we discovered that Stan kind of took the wheel, being with him in, in his interior yeah. was w- the way to transition across those two pieces. So rehearsing and, the set too, it was perfectly done. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And then in terms of like the, the workflow and getting, you know, Dan's, footage and the way like on shape of water and crimson peak it it comes in and when we get to the final di we're not that far if any bit off from what we had been working with for months and months so that's one thing guillermo's constantly driving at with visuals but also we're working with the sound team the composer everyone's we're looking and even mr x our visual effects team we're always driving to present something that is to the idea that Guillermo's chasing, you know, and it constantly evolves and changes, but that's kind of the, the goal always. I think it's important for everybody. We try to do it as close as possible in the camera, you know, so nobody has, you know, because there's so much work to do later on. So mm. we don't want to get into like a confusing about the color palette. Uh, and that's really yeah. what we try to do as much as we can. We're starting to come to the end, but I wanted to know, is there anything each of you can tell me that was like a discovery that you remember happening in the work with Guillermo, with this team that was like, oh, here's a, a happy accident, or this is not something we necessarily planned on, but but here we have it, you know, or or something that happened along the way that just felt fortuitous and perfect that kind of fit into everything else you were putting together. Yeah. When we shot the scene when he's running away from her office and the police cars after him in, in that tunnel under the train, yes. it was like, it was so freezing cold that day. That was the coldest day on the shoot. And, you know, that blends so great into 
the way Bradley has to perform because it was like everything was miserable. It was like a blister. It was like snowstorm, and it was like yeah. it was like so rough that day, and it works so well for the scene. That's a good one. Yeah, in, in the editing process, I would say every day there is always some happy accident <laughs> or discovery because you're constantly <laughs> probing the material, and the material is always challenging you. But I would say the final shot of the film, which was Bradley's first take. Whoa, really? Um, <laughs> that, was, yeah, that I, mean, I remember Guillermo called me on the way home from set and he said, did you use, which take did you use? And I said, take one. And he said, good. And then, but the, the happy accident there was much, much later on in the process. You know, we finished it a bit earlier where he's laughing, but you know, I went into the daily in the Avid and was looking for, you know, a breath that I could use to fill a, like a chair creak. And we kept going through watching the take. And the longer we held in it, where it was immediately obvious that we should have done that from the beginning. <laughs> oh my God. So you were just, you were looking for something for sound, literally. Like exactly. a little- I was looking to fill a patch of uh, sound and then we just wow. kept watching the take and, it was like, oh, that's that's the length. We oh, had to go man. beyond. You know, yeah. When you were shooting that that shot, Dan, were yeah. you guys aware that, like, I mean, on that first take that he did it, it like, I think we was, you know, like you're like, it was like being in the church. It was so fantastic. He came in, and you know, we did a couple of very very briefly rehearsals. You know, just he came in, sit down. And then we shot it and it was like, clearly the number one was, he was so fantastic. And, you know, I think he did it weird in the take number one, but I think all the actors in this movie, the performance is just fantastic. Every day in the set is like, wow, you know, yeah. and that's like, of course, as, as a cinematographer, you're getting blown away because you're just there together with the cast and they're doing this fantastic performance. But there was, it was clearly there was take number one in the last take. I mean, they all sank their teeth into this thing and it's gleeful. It's fun to watch, like every single one of them. I, I'm sure it was almost hard to pick takes sometimes because these are all such talents, like, and these roles are so well written. Like, how do you, like, Willem Dafoe, or like, how do you pick sometimes? <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Did you both, did either of you read the book, the Leshner book, or did he talk about the aspects of it at all? Later on. But never before. No, I didn't read it. Never read it. And I never saw the first, first movie. I really like hearing that. This was my first exposure to the story, was your film. And I was amazed by it. And then I went and looked at the other film, and I read the book. And I was sort of like, wow, I'm, I'm really glad that your movie was the first. I love those other versions. They're interesting. But I loved the way that it was taken. And I hope people see it without knowing anything about the story, because I think that is part of the power of it. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, for sure. I can't thank you guys enough for coming on and doing this. And I wish you the best with the film. And I'm a huge thank fan. You. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, yeah. guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Dan and Cameron, for coming on the show. You know, I'll just say again, I think very highly of this movie. I think that it's as tight and as gleeful is a word I use. And also like just 
absolutely pitch black dark. I mean, this is a haunting, chilling, evil <laughs> movie. And yet I found the protagonist extremely likable. And they talk a lot about something that's really unique, which is that he does not change. We talked about that in this interview. It's something that you hear so many filmmakers talk about or, you know, that filmmaking or screenplays or television shows, they're about characters changing and making choices. And honestly, this is a movie where the character does not really change and he kind of doesn't make choices. He's very consistent in a way and it works beautifully. And it's a fascinating deep dive into the darker aspects of our humanity, I think. Look, I wrote a whole lot of words about this movie and its influences and its meaning on nofilmschool.com. The link to that is in the show notes. Check it out if you just want to keep going down this rabbit hole with me of darkness, this nightmare alley, if you will. Thanks so much for listening. And be sure to check out later this week, we are dropping our interview with the editor and cinematographer, respectively, of Licorice Pizza, another amazing movie this year, directed and written by Paul Thomas Anderson. So this is quite a week for our interviews. Mm-hmm. 